the labor situation in the United States of America. It's September 3rd, 2021, and today some important information came out about the state of the economy from the employment perspective. And we're going to go over that with Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. My name is Emil Kalinowski. Welcome to the show. This is Making Sense. Jeff, hot off the presses, United States unemployment rate dropped to 5.2% in August 2021, the lowest level since March 2020 and in line with market expectations. The labor market continued its steady recovery following business reopenings in the U.S. and despite reports of labor shortages and concerns over the lingering threat of the COVID-19 resurgence. Labor shortages, we're going to come back to that. So that was, who was that from? That was from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. Here is something from IHS Market and their U.S. Services PMI score, though it's a little bit less optimistic. Here's what they say. Service providers, and it's reported today as well, early in the morning, service providers registered broadly unchanged employment levels midway through the third quarter, unchanged, with marginal increase in jobs almost ending a sequence of job creation that extends back to July 2020. Companies noted significant issues retaining employees and finding suitable candidates for current vacancies. So again, that idea of a shortage. Here's a comment from Chris Williamson, the chief business economist at IHS Market. Growth slowed sharply in the U.S. service sector in August, joining the manufacturing sector in reporting a marked cooling in demand and encountering growing problems finding staff and supplies. Job growth almost stalled among the surveyed companies in August. Supply and labor shortages are putting the brakes on the recovery. So we're getting somewhat mixed messages. Somehow, you know, the employment situation is good because the unemployment rate is low, but there's also less hiring taking place in the services sector. How do, what, how do we reconcile these seemingly kind of disparate news items? Right. I mean, I mean, if the labor market or the if the economy is booming, that's what we hear. The economy is steady, it's doing really well, it's strong, whatever adjective you want to throw in there. Yet the labor market seems to be cooling. How do we reconcile what are essentially contradictory signals? And the answer for most people is, at least in the mainstream media, financial media and, of course, from economists and central bankers, is this labor shortage. The economy is doing well. Businesses are having a robust period of, of economic growth except they just can't seem to find enough workers to keep up with how good the economy's doing. And it sounds plausible, but yeah, we've heard this story before. We heard it not just not even very long ago, going back to 2018. And so we already have one example of a labor shortage that wasn't a labor shortage. That's something that we need to keep in mind, as well as a lot of data and evidence that suggests maybe the economy's not doing well, because that's the other way you can reconcile this, this contradictory signals, right? is if the labor market's not doing well, maybe it's because the economy isn't actually doing as well as has been said or has been claimed. And that's really, there's really, it's somewhat of a binary choice here. Which one is it? Is it the labor shortage that's holding a roaring economy from, from really roaring and going, going forward? Or is it maybe the labor market's not really all that great because the economy's not really all that great? So that's what we need to sort out. What, which, one, which way are we moving here? 
earlier you mentioned that we've gone through this before and I remember very specifically when that was it was August mid-August 2018 Toronto Canada the macro voices meetup I remember specifically you Eric Townsend, Patrick Ceresna, and a bunch of Macro Voices fans. We were all at a bar, and people were asking you about the same thing, the labor shortage. And Jeff, you brought up the idea of a market-clearing wage then, while I was stuffing myself with French fries and chicken fingers and beer. So I heard it. I, wasn't, I kept my mouth open as I was eating. But you know, for all the people that weren't there, what is this idea of a market-clearing wage? Isn't that the solution to a labor shortage? Well, there is no labor shortage. When you when you look at it that way, it's really our businesses paying the rate that labor would want. And if there's if there's anybody, you know, if, if you're having trouble, if you're having trouble or you're reporting or saying or claiming that you're having trouble acquire uh, uh, enough laborers or enough employers or employees, um, then what you're really saying is that I'm not paying the rate that would that would that would entice people to come work for me. What I'm saying is I have a job available. I may have a job available. I may think I have a job available, but I'm not willing to pay the rate that the labor would come in and do perform that job. And if I would raise my price to the level that would entice workers to come into my company and do the work I seem to think that they need to do, then that would immediately eliminate the labor shortage because there would be no labor shortage. It's just simply the I'm negotiating the, from a wrong wage rate. And why am I not raising the labor wage? Because me, as a business, it's 2018 or it's 2020. I've gone through this three, four times already. There's a boom. There's a recovery, says central banker or president. But in the real economy, I'm not quite seeing it. I've been fooled once, twice, thrice, and now thrice. And that's why I'm not going to raise the wages that's, that's because that's really the pickle isn't it emil because it's it's look you know if in an economy that's truly robust and i can you can forgive people for not not really appreciating this because it's been so long since we've seen anything like that that we've kind of forgot what a real recovery or a real a real economic boom looks like it doesn't look anything like this hmm. um when a real economic you know in a period of real actual prosperity and growth businesses aren't so they're not going to manage their costs and overmanage their costs in this fashion they're going to say look i've got work orders coming in i need people to to do the work i don't care what the wage rate is pay the person so we can get it done and you know book the sales and get everything you know profits and everything else you know business is truly good if you're saying well you know business might be good and we might need a few people and i'm only willing to pay this for them that's an indication that we're not really in an economic boom. Things might be moving in the right direction, but if businesses are still reluctant to pay what they're supposed to, or what they need to pay to attract labor, that's a very different situation than the, what is described constantly, as you pointed out during these periods over and over again, that the economy is really booming, except employers are not acting like that's the case. They're continuously very cautious and overmanaging their cost structure, and their biggest cost is, of course, labor, and they're they're simply not paying where there actually is labor short or where there actually is a labor or a need for labor. They're not paying the market clearing wage. And we know that because they complain all the time about it. There's, you know, the, we, we used to joke a couple of years back, back in Toronto in 2018 about how there would be a story in the wall street journal every day about companies who couldn't find workers. And they were using these, all these creative ways, these perks and incentives to try to, 
to, to entice workers into their company when the answer is you don't need to be creative. It's really simple and really easy and boring. Just raise the wage rate and you'll have all the workers that you need. Earlier, we went over a couple of statistics, employment statistics. Now we're gonna bring in a few more. We're gonna reference your article that you posted at Alhambra Investments at the blog over there. You posted it on the 1st of September. The title of the article is Yes and No, Taper to Labor and Inflation. And we're gonna go, earlier I mentioned IHS market. Now we're gonna go to ISM, PMI estimates. And the PMI estimate, the headline one, wasn't too good. You're welcome to go over that. But I wanted to focus on the, the, oh, wait, wait, wait. Employment index, it. Yes. That one was okay. It's the employment one that wasn't so good. Save me, Jeff. What did I mean? What did I want to say? Well, the headline, the headline number crept up a little bit, which was, which was, I guess, it's sort of okay, but... Uh, especially considering a lot of PMIs, including those in China, around the rest of the world have been falling precipitously, China, China, China. Um, so the fact that the ISM manufacturing headline index didn't fall was, was itself a good thing. But what we want to look, you know, what, what's important about the ISM's numbers, not just manufacturing, but also non-manufacturing, is that there's been this tremendous divergence between the, the PMI headline and the PMI for its uh, employment component which is something that's relatively new. And it's trying, again, economists, the mainstream media, whatever, they're trying to explain this and reconcile this divergence as, well, that must be the labor shortage, that the workers are, are getting paid too much by the federal government to sit home, this $300 unemployment bonus, whatever it is. There's something preventing labor from getting off the couch and going to work because apparently by the headline PMI number, there's a lot of work to be done. And that's not necessarily the case. And what's probably most important about the ISM's employment index is not just that it fell below 50 for the second time in the last three months in August. So there's relatively weak, relatively weak conditions indicated by that. But the fact that it's really slowed down considerably since that, that same time frame that keeps coming up over and over and over and over again, March and April, March and April, we always, we see a lot of, not just employment data, not just U.S. data, but all around the world, it seems like the slowdown that, that we're all starting to, to, to talk about and analyze now, that's really when it started to show up. And it has, it seems to have had a pretty consistent impact in the U.S., even in the U.S. labor market, despite the idea that, you know, the payroll reports outside of this latest one have been exceedingly robust and the unemployment rate continues to fall. When you look at a lot of the labor market data that aren't those headline numbers, that's really kind of what you see. We talk about in that article ADP's numbers as well. March and April, and then thereafter, the, the global economy seems to have hit a real serious slowdown that actually has impacted even the U.S. labor market. So maybe it isn't labor shortage preventing a robust economy and in companies operating in a robust economy from hiring workers that they really want, but don't seem willing to pay, maybe it really is the fact that companies are worried about whether this slowdown is actually something serious and material. And that's the reason not really willing to, they're not enthusiastically falling all over themselves to procure whatever employees they possibly can at whatever rate the, those, those potential employees want to be paid. Maybe it's because companies have a reason to be cautious. Yes, they have work that they might need to be done, but it doesn't seem like it's one of their first line priorities. 
to get labor in the door to actually perform that kind of a, because they believe that that, that work is going to continue on into the future. I find it somewhat condescending towards the American worker that the the, the establishment says that they're not going to get off the couch for $300. Jeff, I don't know what kind of a shopper you are, but I can't stretch $300 for that amount of time. It seems like, oh, $300 and I'm, I'm not going to go to work unless I get $300 more. I don't, I don't, you know, condescending is what I'm going to describe it. You just well, you said, know, they always said that economics is a dismal science, and oh. maybe they're, you know, it's it's deeply misanthropic in some respects too, right? Because it's, as you're right, and it's it's not just now. We talked about this a lot, 2018, 2019. The last time the labor shortage showed up, it was it was back then described as the same thing: lazy Americans who won't get up off the couch or go back to school and learn to code. All these other, they, we're blaming the 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 American worker for a problem in the American labor market, which is, to me is absolutely patently absurd, but we have to do that or they have to do that because otherwise they'd look at the labor market very differently and then have to look at the economy very differently. Remember what was going on then, which is the exact same going on now. Are we heading off into an inflationary sunset recovery? That was certainly everybody's opinion in 2018 that was rudely interrupted by reality in, in late 2018 and 2019, which proved that there ever was a labor shortage to begin with. It was simply this idea, starting from the premise that the economy must be doing well because Jay Powell and Janet Yellen said so, therefore we have to explain why all these other reasons that show the economy is not doing well can't be because the economy's not doing well. And that's really what economics has turned into, is starting with a, a, a the premise that's being falsified by the data and then trying to falsify the falsifying data, which is the exact opposite of what we should be doing. And all of those things that were done wrong the last time are being done wrong again in exactly the same way for the same stupid reason, which is we're starting from the premise that the economy must be doing really well, but because there are problems in the labor market, we have to explain them in a way that preserves the idea that the economy is doing really well, rather than looking at the labor market that's struggling and showing lots of apparent signs of at least slowing down, at best slowing down, and realizing that that might be the signal we need to look at and then interpret the rest of everything, including the economic situation, from that perspective. We don't need to go backwards here. Automatic data processing, they're the ones that provide that uh chart that we just saw that we're going to reference again, the slowdown in hiring. And here's what their, their economists had to say. Our data, which represents all workers on a company's payroll, has highlighted a downshift in the labor market recovery. We have seen a decline in new hires following significant job growth from the first half of the year. And Jeff, I want to draw everyone's attention to this fantastic pattern that we have seen repeatedly that you have drawn out for us. This is the monthly change in ADP survey, uh, and you can explain exactly what's happening here, but we've seen it. Where have we seen it? We've seen it in inflation, the inflation data, the CPIs, right? It's... And personal income and yep. spending, which I'm going to yes. just zoom down to. And you label it, Jeff, these peaks, the peaks are associated with choppers. Yeah, there's no, it's, I mean, I'm not providing anybody insight here, and there's there's no surprises except if you're an economist, right? These peaks and valleys correlate with whether or not the government is throwing cash into the economy. That's really all it is. Now, the difference is for, for mainstream economists and those like the central bankers like Jay Powell, 
they believe especially fiscal stimulus of that sort is actually stimulus. What we mean by stimulus wow. is that it doesn't yeah. have a, just a short-run impact when the, when the cash goes in and then it, then it disappears. That's not stimulus. Stimulus is that the cash goes in, it ignites the virtuous circle of economics, and then it continues to take off. It lasts, it lasts more than a couple of months. At least that's the theory. But in Priming practice, the pump. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that you is, fell uh, over. Let me get you up and off you go. But no, exactly. you're debilitated. So I pick you up. You fall down again. I pick you up, and now <laughs> I'm stimulating really you. Walk. Right. It's like injecting somebody with cocaine, and then they, as soon as the cocaine high wears off, they're half dead again, right? It's, it's all that's really happened. In reality, we've seen this time and time again. Economists continue to put a positive multiplier on, on fiscal, act, uh, fiscal stimulus activity when, in fact, it, you know, especially in these situations where the economy is in really bad shape, it can't have anything other than a temporary short-run impact. And so it, when you get away from the neo-Keynesian ideology that, that worships this kind of activity and therefore is always seeking to validate the theory rather than looking at data to potentially falsify the theory, when you look at the actual data, when you get past that ideology, this isn't any surprise. Once the checks were flown out through the digital helicopter of the, the Treasury Department, yes, it had short-run impacts, but then what? It was not a surprise. I don't think it was a surprise to businesses either that this was going to wear off. I think maybe it was a little bit more surprising that how quickly it may have worn off. And in some respects, that may answer the question of why businesses aren't paying market clearing wages for labor. They're not really sure they're going to need for the long run. Because yeah, they might need it. They might need it. Well, they might have needed it yesterday. They might not necessarily need it today. And they're really concerned about whether or not they really want to load up on employees for tomorrow that isn't going the way that everything has been, every, it's the way, certainly the way that uh, it has been mapped out in the mainstream media in Jay Powell's new inflationary taper stance and everything else. Why would you hire employees, which you can't get rid of very quickly, right? Those wages are sticky. If you look at this chart in the United States, at least, where the consumption is 62 thirds or seven-tenths of the economy. Here we're looking at personal consumption expenditure. You drew the all-important dashed line, the trend. And we can see how before the COVIDs arrived in December 2018, we fell off the trend, fell off even further just before the lockdowns hit. And we've recovered, kind of, but not to the trend. And now it's flattened out. So, Yeah, know, it when makes... did it flatten out again? Uh, March. There it shows March and April. Again, those months show up everywhere. And what happened in March and April? March and April was when the last helicopter from the Treasury Department was flown. And so ever, ever since the, that dose of cash hit the U.S. economy, and remember, the U.S. economy is the outlier. The U.S. economy is the one that's doing better than most. And as you just showed on that chart, better than most means we haven't even returned to trend yet. Despite all of those trillions in, federal, in Uncle Sam's dollars and nickels and pennies, it hasn't even, it hasn't even led to an re actual recovery. And ever since those, that helicopter went back to its, its base in the Treasury Department, things haven't been, you know, they haven't been continuously accelerating. They have slowed down. Now, they haven't come, they haven't crashed. It's not like things are just falling apart without it, but we're not seeing any further acceleration which is what I think has gotten a, a hell of a lot of attention and certainly in the bond market and the U.S. dollar exchange and all these other financial indications, which are sort of kind of saying we told you so.
We told you this was going to happen. These things, these impacts were going to be transitory. This really isn't a surprise. And if you're still thinking that this is a labor shortage, well, we told you what was going to happen by falling yields. Then it did happen. And that thing that did happen wasn't the labor shortage. It was a slowdown, a material slowdown in the global economy. We've gone over four economic statistics. I'm going to add two more that came in this morning. The first one, U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. The U.S. economy added 235,000 jobs in the August of 2021, the lowest in seven months and well below forecasts of 750,000, as a surge in COVID-19 infections may have discouraged companies from hiring and workers from actively looking for a job. Now let's go to the services. Well, before you, I mean, look, that, that, that explanation makes it sound like this is just a problem in August, which by the establishment survey, that seems to be the case, right? We've had lots of really good payroll numbers up until this point, and then we have an August that seems to be an outlier. So if you're just, you know, somebody, you know, layperson, member of the public, and all you really find to follow of the economy is the payroll report, that kind of sounds like it's a legitimate, plausible explanation. You don't know about all of this other stuff that's going on. You don't pay attention to the bond market, of course. You look at the stock market. You get the wrong picture of what may be going on in the economy. And this idea that it's all based on, it's all Delta COVID kind of sounds like it maybe has, maybe that's really what's happening. There's a labor shortage, there's COVID. It sounds plausible. But when you step back and look at all the other data, it's yeah. There's something else going on here because all the rest of the data. August was not the only month where we've seen problems. It's been a it's been a growing issue because there's been a slowing issue for many. You know, we're talking about going back to March. You know, it's half a year already. Financial Times about an hour ago. U.S. job growth slows sharply as Delta hits recovery. <laughs> Let's go to another statistic. The Earlier we talked about manufacturing, ISM. Now, this morning, we got the ISM services. And the headline number was good-ish, you know. Economic activity in the service sector grew in August for the 15th month in a row. Great. We're here to talk about the economic, blah, the employment part. Okay, here's what the news release said. Employment activity in the service services sector grew in August for the second consecutive month after contracting in June. The index registered 53.7 in August, down 0.1 percentage point from July's reading of 53.8. Comments from respondents include, we are hiring at record levels to staff our restaurants, but turnover is high and many former employees are still on extended unemployment have not returned to work. Also, increasingly difficult to find qualified candidates to fill open positions. Jeff, that's it for me on the employment front. Uh, any summary thoughts? Yeah, this, this is not just a recent development. This, as we said before, this goes back six months already, like the bond market and bond yields, which again, we're warning you that this kind of a, this kind of a pattern was emerging, in not just in the US economy, but the global economy. The fact that we're now seeing it emerge in U.S. labor data suggests that it's probably something more serious than simply just labor shortage, can't find workers, lazy Americans, those damn lazy Americans who won't work for an extra 300 bucks or you know, for lack of an extra $300 or whatever, whatever excuse is thrown out there. There's, there's more, much more going on here than those surface analysis that you'll see 
that's just, oh, just the, the August payroll number's off. It's just a one-month aberration. It's more than a one-month aberration, and it has a lot more behind it than just the, the establishment survey. In part two of this episode, we're going to talk about those lazy, average Americans and how, for years, they have correctly been predicting which direction, what the temperature of the economy is at a better rate than the fancy, highly credentialed economists. Does the common American, Joe, John Doe, and Susie Q, do they know more about the economy than the holders of the fanciest degrees in economics? Surely not. And yet, there's a survey from NBC that seems to show that for years, that has been the case. We're going to talk about it with Jeff Snyder, the head of global research at Alhambra Partners. My name is Emil Kalinowski. Jeff, we're going to be referencing a post you did at Alhambra Investments on the 24th of August. The title is, They've Lost That Loving Feeling. And we're going to go to an NBC News survey public poll. Is there anything you want to, do you want to introduce this poll before we dive in? How did you find it? There, it's just a, you know it's a poll like any other poll. It just happened to be it has a it has a pretty long history dating back quite a while, almost twenty years. So that's really kind of our interest here because we want to have sort of a consistent sampling process and the same type of data that goes back as well. So there's not any discontinuities in the figures, so we can we reasonably assure that what we're looking at is consistent across time. So that's the reason why we we decided to highlight this NBC News poll is because it goes back. Uh, that long. And yes, these polls tend to be uh, political in nature because that's really what NBC News is looking at is, uh, you know, analyzing some kind of election or something about that. But this one question that they've been consistently asking is simply is a very simple one. It has nothing to do with politics. Yeah, I mean, the responses might be political that people give, but really it's just, hey, what do you feel the economy is doing right now? And that's they've been asking this question for the, uh, that length of time. And so there's really some value in this type of consistency and even even a, 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 this type of poll. Well, we've, I've pulled up a graph now. You've labeled uh, three little sections here, euro dollar number two, euro dollar number three, euro dollar number four. But Jeff, let's take a look at euro dollar number one, more popularly known as the global financial crisis. And if, well, let me zoom down here. Maybe you did do it and I was looking at the wrong page. There it is. So this is the key. So the the green square da- dashed line that represents the number of people saying the the economy is poor, right? And then we've got the unemployment rate, the rate that Mrs. Yellen was looking to, and everyone, all the economists are looking to, to determine whether or not the economy is doing well. And look at what happens in two thousand five and six, right? It goes. The wrong yeah. way. You would think it would be the uh, right. It would be the other way around, right? The unemployment rate would rise, and then consumer confidence, or you know, the percent, the proportion saying that the economy is doing poor would follow. But yet, what we see is that it, no, consumers started to get their their concerns before they got their uh, pink slips from being laid off, and that's it's really kind of you know again consistency in the poll, but. You see something like that, it seems like maybe there's some value, some some unappreciated value beyond simply the consistency in the polling. Jeff, there's a little bit of a difference with the 
with the euro dollar number two, three, and four, there seem to have been more surveys. I noticed that there's only like one data point there, one square. Did they just kind of forget to ask during that period that question or something? Did they skip for a couple of years? Or I no? think I think that's really what it was. That it okay. wasn't it wasn't asked regularly at that point at that stage. Whereas after in the post crisis era, obviously with the economy being the mm-hmm. number one topic on everybody's mind. They made made more of an effort to consistently ask the question. Got it. Which I mean, again, you know, that kind of makes sense because before 2008, you know, yeah, in the 21st century, after the dot com recession, people started thinking about the economy. But really, you know, go back to the 90s and the 80s, the economy was one of the last things people, especially pollsters, were actually thinking heavily about, and were actually thinking that the American public was thinking much about because it had always seemed to be very robust. The quote unquote great moderation and all that and then suddenly you know 2008 comes along and now the economy has been consistently on the top of everybody's mind which is kind of what we're going for here and really in this particular poll it started to become on the american public's mind before we ever got to the big recession in 2008 exactly but some people economists let's call them will say you know that may have been a statistical anomaly yeah the proportion went up, but we didn't ask that question often enough. So maybe it was just uh, an anomaly. But now we move forward a few years to 2011, the nail in the coffin of the euro dollar system. And what do we see? We see three consecutive surveys suggesting, no, it is going the wrong way. And I draw that number to everyone's attention. One, two, three in a row saying, we're going the wrong way. Does the timing line up, Jeff, with what was happening in the global monetary system in Europe, mind you, Jeff? It was in Europe where the locus of this crisis took place. And yet the average lazy American, quote unquote, knew what was happening. Absolutely. And it does line up perfectly with euro dollar number two. So we're looking at 2011 and into 2012, which was, you know, well, the U.S. didn't didn't actually register a recession, which is why the, the poll numbers probably didn't go even further than they had. But the Europeans did and growth slowed across the rest of the world. But it was definitely an interruption, a serious interruption in the quote unquote recovery of the global economy because it wasn't a recovery. And that that was something that was picked up, not just in markets like bonds and bond yields falling, but by, again, these lazy American workers who could sense, at least some of them could sense, that things were not going in the right direction, even though the unemployment rate, the some of the labor market data was suggesting that maybe you know, things were still fine. There's really nothing to be worried about. Let me read a quote from yesteryear, Jeff, because this is a survey done by NBC. Let's go to October 17th, 1965. NBC's Meet the Press. William F. Buckley Jr. Here's what he says. As Franklin Adams once said, I think the average American is a little bit above average. And under the circumstances, I rejoice over the influence of the people over their elected leaders, since by and large, they show more wisdom than their leaders or their intellectuals. I'm often quoted as saying, I would rather be governed by the first 2,000 people in the Boston Telephone Directory than by the 2,000 people on the faculty of Harvard University. Let's, I love it. I love it. Now let's move forward. Well, you know, that, that there's, there's simplicity to it because, you know, 
economists have lots of data, they have their theories, they're weighed down by their ideology. And so they have all that baggage, as we just spent the last segment talking about, you know, they have these fixed ideas that need to be, you know, that if, if there's contrary data to their fixed ideas, they can't just easily say, well, my whole worldview has just been falsified. I'm going to throw everything out the window. <laughs> Whereas the American worker doesn't have that baggage. American worker can just say, yeah, I see the unemployment rates falling. It's, and everybody tells me the economy is moving, but that's certainly not what I see in, in my own experience. And I don't care about, you know, whether or not econometric models are perfect or even good. I don't care about, you know, that uh, you know, our theories on the Phillips curve and inflation are, you know, too, maybe not complicated or not too complicated. I just know that everybody says the economy is moving in the right direction, but I just don't see it. My, my, you know, my world doesn't doesn't line up with all of those things. And by the way, there's a few more of my neighbors who are starting to agree with my assessment, too. Yeah, Phillips. Philip, let's take a Phillips screwdriver through that Phillips curve model. That's what the average American is saying. And Jeff, again, I say three consecutive readings because sometimes they'll be asked and there's a, you know, it does go the wrong way. Hey, I don't like the economy, but not for three in a row. Look when the next time when that green square dash line goes up, euro dollar three. Jeff, does the timing of the next surge in pessimism, I guess surge, I'm overdoing it, but the clear break from a trend towards optimism, towards improvement, does it line up with the third euro dollar crisis, which Jeff was thousands of miles away from the shores of America in China? and Brazil. Yeah, it's 2015, that, that, that weird year where everybody was convinced after 2014's best job market in decades, the unemployment rate tumbling far and fast. And, uh, you know, Janet Yellen just itching to get on with not just terminating QEs, but also rate hiking rates. You know, that was supposed to happen as early as May and June of 2015. And instead, they started talking about an oil crash and you know, uh, overseas turmoil, as you just pointed out, and all these other things. And then the only man at the Janet Yellen, poor Janet Yellen, only managed the one rate hike in December 2015 and then, then took a whole year off of any other ones. So not only does the, the survey of these the American, American workers, essentially, but American people, American voters, not only does the survey pick up this economic weakness, but eventually the economists agreed with it. After the fact, they said, you know, maybe there is some economic weakness here. Again, it wasn't a recession in the United States, but it was a that that near recession in the U.S. was a part of a global hole, which was in some places far, 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 far worse. So again, the Americans, the survey of American people picked up on what was already evident and predicted in bond yields, which was falling yields throughout 2014 that accelerated 2015 and especially late 2015 and 2016 which was the bond market saying, we predict that there's going to be a slowdown. The American people are saying, yeah, we start to feel the slowdown. And then only after it's over, do the economists come back and say, oh, there might have been a slowdown. That's really kind of the repeating pattern here. And Jeff, it wasn't a economic shock in the United States, but a socioeconomic political shock, because you remember that's when Bernie Sanders avowed socialist and the orange man came to the fore. 
totally out of character for what we've seen for decades. But and unpredicted, right? And that was, I mean, this was supposed to be out in 2016, Brexit. You know, all of these things that kept happening in the political sphere as a consequence of economy and economic conditions that don't line up to the mainstream narrative. Now, it does line up to the actual underlying baseline condition, which is set by the bond market, which tells you that, hey, there's things that are going wrong, not right, more going wrong than going right. And so when the American people start to tell pollsters that they sort of agree with that at the margins, you know, there's a few more Americans that agree that things are going poorly than better, despite the fact that the unemployment rate continues to fall and the establishment survey continues to look good, you really need to pay attention to that and think what is going on right now that these things are starting, apparently the apparent contradictions, maybe they're not really contradictions at all. Let's move forward in time again, Jeff. I'm counting one, two, three increases in the negativity in, late, in let's say, call it 2019, going counter trend to the unemployment rate. Our Americans... low in the unemployment rate, too, remember? That 50, was the big deal about 20, 2018, 2019, was that it wasn't just the unemployment rate was low, it was a 50-year... I mean, it was the booming of... the boom of all booming economies. Jeff, are these lazy, unemployed, uneducated Americans, are they actually secretly epidemiologists? Did they know that the corona was on its way where they clued in with what was happening in China or no, is it just what we've been yeah. talking about, Jeff? <laughs> they were predicting coronavirus. No, it's, and I think that's part of the problem that we're going to, you know, we're going to, about to, we're just about to get into is that lost in all of this COVID and coronavirus in 2020 is the fact that the global economy started its downturn at the start of 2018. And then in many places around the world, uh, Japan, Germany, and, think, and places like the countries like that, they had already entered recession before anybody knew about COVID or the corona or Wuhan or anything of the sort. And yes, Americans in that same NBC survey had started to pick up on that same weakness that had already had already worked its way in. We talk about, you know, we talk about all the time the landmine in late 2018. That's really what Americans in this poll were responding to, the fact that this globally the globally synchronized downturn was becoming more and more synchronized as 2018 ended and 2019 began, which again was the exact opposite interpretation of most people at the time, especially those at the central bank. Remember, Jay Powell was still hiking rates because he thought things were going to be inflationary and even more inflationary better in 2019. The Economist had that fantastic hot rod, hot rod cover of Jay Powell and an orangey shimmer and driving across the desert and the thunder and the lightning. And they had this, what was the title? America's running Extraordinary hot. Yeah, Gamble. Extraordinary Gamble Running Hot. Woo! And at the time, you know, here we have the bond market saying, hey, maybe was, there's, there's stuff going on. I think it was April, right? The was, dollar I, hit its low, maybe the weekend they published it. <laughs> February, I think it was the February 2008 okay. version, which is right okay. when things were starting to change. Yes. They, they basically, they top ticked it and rang the bell for reflation number three. But, but, you know, again, the idea is that the economists never really changed its tune, even into 2019. They were confused, as most economists were, Trading why is Jay Powell starting to cut rates? I mean, it doesn't really seem like it should, when, in fact, the American people were like, you know, we're moving in the wrong direction here. It's not, it's not, a, a, it's not like 2020, where there was a you know, legitimate recession, or full-blown recession, I should say. 
but it was the economy was not moving in the way the unemployment rates seemed to make it seem, which is that this this tremendous, awesome, booming period when it was actually a period of weakness that was getting weaker by the month. And this was before we ever got to Corona and China and everything else. Now, I think the we're going to go over what the latest uh, poll results are. But before we do, I want to tell the audience that people are probably thinking this can't be right. How is it that just average Joes and Janes can be outthinking the highly educated? And it's really, uh, it's a perspective and a lack of independence by those that are in the establishment. And I'm going to read a few lines from a book called uh, The Wisdom of Crowds, and it was by James Surowiecki. And here, let me just read it. The premise of the wisdom of crowds is that under the right conditions, group can be remarkably intelligent and that they can actually be smarter than even the smartest within them. And then he gives an, uh, the example of a jar of jelly beans and asking us all of us to guess how many there are and that even if there are jelly bean experts in the room, our average is going to be better on average in like 95% of the estimates. The most famous example, of course, comes from 1906, 1907, depending on which internet source you use, Francis Galton. He collated the answers of 787 farmers, butchers, livestock experts, housewives from a competition asking the public to guess the weight of an ox. Remarkably, the average of all the guesses, 1,198 pounds, Jeff, you had that one, was only off by Galton's, it was only off by one-tenth of one percent, Jeff. And then in the book, they give lots of other examples, like who wants to be a billionaire, asking the crowd versus phoning a friend, the U.S. Navy finding the USS Scorpion in 1968. They had no idea where it was. It sank, and they did kind of a wisdom of the crowd, Bayesian kind of uh, study uh, modeling, and they found it. The shuttle exploded in 1986, the Challenger, and how Morton Tycall's uh, stock went down much more than the other companies that were involved with the space shuttle. But here's the key, here's the key. Researchers attempting to leverage the wisdom of the crowds to answer seemingly impossible questions must do so with care. The assessments must be diverse and independent of one another. Estimates should be decentralized, drawing on private local knowledge. Non-independent guesses that rely on others' approximations can be self-reinforcing and send the process erroneously off path. Do you see where I'm getting at, Jeff? Is that the, the economists, they all think the same, right? It's not independent well, thought. Not just that. Look, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to plot that NBC poll result against the unemployment rate. And you can see, by and large, the two match, especially since in the, in the post-crisis era. And I think that's why, is exactly what we're talking about here, is that there's this self-reinforcing non-independence upon, upon uh, being, get, being picked up in the poll results. In other words, people's perceptions of the economy are colored by the unemployment rate, right? They don't know what the economy's doing because the economy is this big, you know, uh, ephemeral thing. It's not a tangible thing you can just look at and say, this is what it is. And so the poll results by that, that overall trend down into the right is being influenced by the unemployment rate. 
because people don't follow the economy, they don't follow these economic numbers, but they probably do hear about the unemployment rate, unemployment rate fairly regularly. And so that's why overall perception is skewed by the unemployment rate, except for these specific periods. And so that's really what we're doing. Exactly what the quote you just read is exactly what we're doing. We're saying, look, even in this big data way, we have this self-reinforcing sort of spoilage in the data, but when it doesn't spoil, when we finally see the, you know, these, these intermittent periods where the unemployment rate no longer holds its power and sway, that's when we pay attention because that's where the public is saying, well, you, the unemployment rates is going lower, but we're not kind of feeling it this, this time like we, were, like we do normally. And that's really what we're looking at here, that the, the American public is very much um, affected and in, in, in its, its opinion on the economy is very much affected by the unemployment rate, except during these certain periods. And that's really when we ought to pay attention to them. Earlier in episode one, I revealed that the U.S. unemployment rate dropped to 5.2% for August 2021, the lowest level since March 2020. Jeff, does the NBC survey of average regular Joe Americans and Susie Q's correlate or has it broken free again, going the wrong direction, away from the unemployment rate? Not only has it gone the wrong way, it's gone the wrong way by quite a lot actually in fact the, the according to the poll results which were taken during august during the same month where the unemployment rate fell a couple tenths more to 5.2 percent the amount of people saying that the economy is doing poorly surged upwards i think it was 34 percent of the entire hmm. sample which was the highest since last summer which you know we're not supposed to think the economy is doing as bad this summer as it was last summer are we are we really believing in leading to that conclusion? But, you know, the other thing is that it's been, I know you're going to pick up on this, Emil. I'm going to spoil it. No, steal maybe not. I don't right know. Here. Go ahead. Tell me. What? I no, don't know. But again, look at where the, the poll turned. Now, okay. I know there wasn't consistent polls throughout the year, but the, the, the valley in the amount of, in the proportion of the public saying the, the, the economy is doing poorly was in April. Again, March and April, ever since March and April, we consistently see in all of these data where things seem to be going in the wrong direction again, a rolling over of the global economy, including the U.S. economy, despite Uncle Sam's best efforts, or at least Uncle Sam's gargantuan efforts, yeah. that you know the public is picking up on something, the employment data is picking up on something, the bond market predicted all of this as usual, and it's not just COVID, it's not just renewed corona, it's not just, you know, what is the other excuses? Labor shortage. Uh, I mean, I, Where's that, Donald those, Trump? these numbers here don't, don't really What's look like doing? a labor shortage. Can we blame him? Is, Don, blame is the orange Donald Trump, the orange man, is he doing anything right now? Is he initiating a trade really, war? That's where it really becomes so unhelpful is that be, this becomes a partisan football. Mm. So Democrats are going to blame Donald Trump for not doing enough or not doing the right things. Republicans are going to blame Joe Biden for not doing enough, not doing the right things. And everybody's out to lunch on what's really going on here, which is neither party has done the right things for a very, very long time. And each one is captured by economics to continue to do the wrong things over and over and over and over again. Yeah, in an earlier episode, we talked about how there have been four presidents since this silent depression began, two of each party 
you know, and the nostrum and the palliatives and the tonics that they apply, none of them work. So it's not a partisan thing. Jeff, Which, that's it for why me. Why don't they work? You know, that's the next part. Why don't they work? What, why is what they do never seem to be effective? Why do we continue to go down the, the road of Jap the, Jap the Japanese path when we have the Japanese example right in front of us as something not to do? That's really the issue. It's, it's not really about 2020 and coronavirus. Yes, that was the shock. And that is certainly com causing uh, complications in the recovery since then. But this is a pattern we keep seeing repeated over and over again. As, you, as, you, as your uh, analogy before, you know, the economy gets knocked down. We pick, some, we pick the person back up and they just fall right back down again. Why? That's what we need to start to, we need to zero in on. Well, Japan leading the way and showing us what not to do is going to come up in part three. We're going to take a lightning round through the Commonwealth, touch on a few of Jeff's articles, a few news stories, and wrap up the show. Lightning round. We're going to go through a few of Jeff's articles and touch on what's happening in the world economy, some recent news stories. And I'm only going to give Jeff 10 to 15 seconds to answer each question. I didn't agree. That's, wait a minute. That's way too restrictive. And anybody who knows the show, 10 to 15 seconds, as I've just wasted 10 to 15 seconds. It's waiting over, that. Jeff. Yeah, it's, it's, that's not going to work. All right. First stop on our Commonwealth tour, we're going to go to an article you wrote for Alhambra Partners. You posted it on the September of the 2nd of the 2001, and it's called China, Australia, and the European way into reverse repo. We're going to start with the Australian dollar. Jeff, I'm going to pull up a graph here and uh, just tell us the Australian dollar and, and the Chinese yuan, how it's linked. Yeah, well, I mean, Australia is very much, uh, very much influenced. The Australian economy and the Australian finance system is very much influenced by what's going on in China for obvious reasons as a resource and export-oriented economy. That makes perfect sense. Uh, and then, you know, the Australian dollar is simply uh, tracks along with the global financial flows, as you would expect. You know, the Australian dollar gets weaker when we go into dollar shortage, rising dollar situations, it gets stronger as reflation takes over. It's a pretty consistent indicator along those lines. And what we've seen is there's that date again, February 25th of this year, peak in the Australian dollar. It's been set backwards and going the wrong way ever since, which is deflationary rising dollar stuff. Um, and then that really picked up after May, and in particular, a couple days in June, the middle of June. Something happened in the Australian dollar, but not just the Australian dollar, it was the entire dollar system that registered what was not, you know, not necessarily a seismic huge earthquake, but it was serious enough that it seems to have caused a stir, certainly a disturbance in the exchange values, and then some consequences thereafter in the Chinese exchange value, which sort of matches and lines up with the Australian dollar, as you would expect, as I said. Well, it lines up until June 18th. Jeff, that's the point that we're going to take it right now. Yes, the Australian dollar follows a certain pattern. The Chinese yuan follows that same pattern because the two economies are so closely linked to themselves as well as global capital flows. But then June 16th, 17th, 18th, we're looking at the graph right now. The Chinese currency went straight as in straight as in level as in it's not changing while the Australian dollar is falling. Jeff, before you explain that, can I just uh, drop a bit of shocking news to you? Are Go you ahead. ready? 
Uh, we've always been talking about the 24th, 25th, and 26th of February and how everything turned around. I found another one, Jeff. It's in your graph for the Australian dollar. I found another one, the gold-silver ratio, Jeff. Now, I've always maintained that the if a rising ratio signifies that gold is getting more valuable, therefore, you know, deflation, deflationary, disinflationary circumstances. If the ratio is falling, silver is getting more valuable, inflationary, reflationary circumstances. Jeff, I know it's easy to dismiss two lumps of metal and their relative value between each other, but the low, the multi-year low came in on the 25th of February. And ever since then, it's been going the other way. Now, I want to do a quick footnote because people are going to say actually came in on February 1st. That was the day where the meme stock uh, GameStop, Reddit, Wall Street bets crowd focused on silver. So silver shot up in value. The next day, the ratio was back to where it had been before. So I'm striking that from the conversation. But Jeff, yet another monetary indicator that something snapped on the yeah, 24th and, and, and 25th. We added to the list, not just because it's another it's it's a long list, but we add it because what we're, our main theme and our main thesis is that this is not just a recent development, right? This deflationary pressures have been building for quite a very long period of time. They predate Delta. They predate, you know, the labor shortage getting really worse. All of these excuses that are thrown around in the, for the U.S. economy. And they have had the matching impacts in the rest of the global economies, particularly China, which explains why China and Australia would act in the way that they have, except for that late, that, that latest part where they decoupled. They decoupled so, on that day, that week. Why, Jeff? What happened between the 16th, 17th, and 18th of June? Yeah, unfortunately, since this is a lightning round, we can't spend a lot of time on it. But June, June 17th was the, the rate, the day the uh, Federal Reserve paid a five basis point rate on the reverse repo program, which was the, the Fed meeting in the middle of June. So something happened in the Fed meeting, and I believe it was the reverse repo going to five, which exposed the collateral story. And if you want to read more about exactly what that is, you can go to our website and find that. But that's really what – when the collateral. reverse repo started to become that much of an issue, the Fed exposed the collateral thing, which then caused a bigger problem in the dollar system because everybody could see that it was a collateral issue, which then led the Chinese to do something with their own currency, which means stealth intervention in China – which the Australian dollar further reveals by that decoupling. So now we know that CNY is being pegged or at least put into a loose range. And today there's been all sorts of fireworks in CNY, which we aren't going to be able to get to. So mm. something's going on with the Chinese currency, as I said a couple episodes ago, always makes you cringe because whenever the Chinese start to manage self-manage their currency, that's usually one of the signs that things are going the wrong way to a serious degree. Thankfully, Philip... Our lane is on the case at the ECB. Now, this is my weakest connection to the Commonwealth because he's actually Irish and they're not a member of the Commonwealth, but Northern Ireland is. So the connection stays, ladies and gentlemen. Recently, he talked about uh, what the ECB is going to do after their exhaustive review. Why am I bringing it up? Because it was in your article that we just mentioned with the Australian dollar. And as part of that exhaustive review, Jeff, they have decided that they are going to now do symmetric inflation targeting. And by my estimates, they're about two, three years behind the Fed, 
who announced this in June of 2018. And then a year or two later, in August 2020, they updated it to average inflation. And then they're about three or more years behind Japan, who in July 2017 had this report published, which said, which said why did the BOJ not achieve a 2% inflation target with a time horizon of about 2%? And then here's another one from the Federal Reserve, raising the inflation target, lessons from Japan. Quote, this is from the Federal Reserve, January 2020, the success of adopting an inflation, explicit inflation target to lower inflation in the past may not necessarily imply the success of doing so to raise inflation in the future. Symmetrical inflation, the ECB, why are they doing it? Because they don't know what else to do. <laughs> That's the short answer. The, the uh, real answer is that, look, they have no idea what's going on, and so they're thinking... Well, why have we not been able to achieve an inflationary uh, liftoff in all of the years since 2008? And in Europe, it's been the same as it has been in the United States, which is already a clue that there's a unifying global factor that has nothing to do with central banks. And central banks are simply struggling to, to identify cause and effect. It doesn't mean that they ever admit that there's this global unifying monetary factor beyond their control, because to admit that would destroy all of mainstream monetary thought and monetary policy and central banking in particular. So the ECB has decided, well, we'll just do what the Fed does. We'll just hope that the explanation is that um, when we get in these situations where the economy meets uh, so gets so weak, such bad recession, central banks have to uh, get, uh, um, interest rates fall, which means that central banks encounter the zero lower bound, which limits their ability to really lower rates as much as, as quickly and as far as they might want to, which causes them to do these all these extraordinary monetary programs like quantitative easing, which everybody knows because we're all taught in the textbook, is powerful monetary stimulus. And so as, as, soon, as soon as central banks are forced into this powerful monetary stimulus at the zero lower bound, the market immediately thinks this is going to be inflationary. And because we also know that central banks are inflation fighters, that by the very fact of them doing these powerful monetary stimulus means that it's going to lead to inflation and therefore they're going to prematurely snuff out the inflation which means central banks by being successful are their own sense of failure I'm, that's really what we're supposed to believe here that was amazing that was a lightning round unbelievable people and it's all bullshit <laughs> so that's really it was a waste of everybody's time now i think the reason i put that into the article was this is what central bankers around the world are busy doing this tortured logic, pretzel logic nonsense about forward guidance and symmetric inflation targets, where in actual money is that stuff for the Australian dollar. And basically the only real central bank left on the planet, which is the People's Bank of China, which at least intervenes in money occasionally, not very effectively, but at least they do. So while central bankers are off talking about ridiculous nonsense and absurdities, the actual monetary system is once again left to its own devices, which is one reason why we're stuck in this problem, because the monetary system in a deflationary environment left to its own devices will never get out of that same deflationary environment. Deflationary environment. Jeff, I'm always mindful that whenever we talk about inflation in this time, people are going to turn the show off because they see prices rising. Natural gas. Earlier it was lumber. Uh, cars, vehicles. So I want to just read a couple of lines from this story because the point that you always make is we are not disagreeing that there are price increases. 
we are disagreeing that this is a result of monetary inflation, that these price increases are caused by central banks and central governments creating money and raining it down upon the economy. Let me read a story about natural gas from the UK. It's the Financial Times. Natural gas crunch sends prices hurtling higher. Natural gas prices in the UK have soared to some of the highest levels on record, threatening to raise costs for households and businesses. Why? Did they mention the Bank of England? No. Supplies of the critical fossil fuel remains tight. So the prices are the highest like, since 2005, and they're at a record high for the summer. Here's some more. A prolonged winter, so they're listing the reasons why this has happened. A prolonged winter drained storage levels across Europe. Meanwhile, Russia, the largest supplier, has sent less gas to the continent than before the pandemic. Critics believe that Moscow is trying to pressure the EU to approve the launch of the controversial Nord Stream 2 pipeline later this year. But Russia has not been the only factor. Natural gas supplies have tightened globally as big economies have rebounded from the coronavirus pandemic. Here's another one. Brazilian imports of LNG have climbed to the highest on record as droughts crimp its hydropower plants. Supply has also been hit by a series of outages and planned maintenance. European domestic production has also posted sharp declines, both from the North Sea and, I can't say this word, Kroningen, the continent's largest onshore gas field in the Netherlands. That field has been forced to restrict production because of a series of minor earthquakes and is now expected to shut permanently next year. The number of times... Bank of England, Federal Reserve, Jay Powell were mentioned as exactly zero, Jeff. Which Not is monetary for, inflation. Yeah, for a mainstream media source because they're always looking to attribute these things to positive and powerful monetary quote-unquote stimulus. I've got another story, but I guess because it's lightning round, I can't do it. But it's about car chips, Jeff. Uh, Ningbo the third busiest port out of China, COVID, Malaysia, a fire at the second largest automotive microchip uh, processing factory in Japan. All of those things, all of those things are the reasons that prices are so high and why U.S. car inventories are now at their lowest level in over 50 years of data. Not once is... Powell or Bernanke or Yellen or the Bank of England or the Bank of Japan mentioned. It's supply chain, demand surges caused by the corona and everything. It's not caused by money printing. Yeah, and what we're saying is that if it's not inflation inflation, then we don't expect that it's going to last. Once these supply bottlenecks work themselves out, it will have been a transitory deviation in certain prices, which is different from monetary inflation, which is where you get into a situation, a nightmare situation like the 1970s, where no matter what people do, it just continues on and on and on forever. And I know people, a lot of people out there are predicting that this is just the beginning of that, but that's what we're telling you, that it's not because we don't see the monetary signals that would, that would go along with this being a prolonged period of like the 1970s out of control prices. What we're seeing instead is 
reinforced data, reinforced price signals, reinforced market signals, saying that this is idiosyncrasies, supply factors, government intrusions, things like that, that don't line up to something like the great inflation of the 1970s. Our last stop on this whistle-stop tour of the Commonwealth is in the old country, Jeff, England, Britain, and the Bank of England. And they recently had, what, what did they have, Jeff? They had a meeting, a conference, a, a confab, where, where? It was the House was of Lords. It the House of Lords that commissioned a report Yes. It said, hey, let's look at this QE business because we're not convinced it seems to be doing what it's supposed to be doing. And it's interesting because on the one hand they get it and on the other hand they don't. And so you help us understand. It was posted on at least the transcript here or the summary report was published on the 16th of July, 2021. So very recently. Economic Affairs Committee, Quantitative Easing, A Dangerous Addiction. Why? Yeah, it's you know it's a dangerous addiction, but addiction to who? Maybe the stock market, and not necessarily. I think they were talking more about policymakers. Policymakers are addicted mm. to QE yes. in that yes. they say, "Let's keep doing them one after another after another," without ever evaluating whether or not they should be doing them at all. And what the House of Lords did was present a bunch of witnesses, put together this exhaustive report, and the conclusion was, "We're not really sure we should be doing this QE stuff." Number one. The only place that we could identify where it was possibly helpful was during financial crisis. Mm -hmm. What we're really saying is that we don't know if it actually helped. We just can't tell because we don't know what it would have, what the crisis would have looked like if there hadn't have been a quantitative easing. We're just assuming that quantitative easing and bank reserves played some role in stopping the crisis. So that's the best that they can say about quantitative easing. And as we know around here, we don't buy that at one bit anyway. But that's what they said. That's the good part of QE is that we can't falsify it didn't work during the crisis because we don't have a counterfactual to show what it would have looked like if they never did QE. But well, more importantly, yeah. moving ahead, what does it do in terms of inflation and real economic growth? They all came to the same conclusion is that it doesn't do a damn bit of anything. So the only argument in favor of QE is that it may help during crisis, but there's really no evidence for it. But as we're seeing around the rest of the world in these academic studies and various other places that the public is not clued in on, the start, the, even the official verdict on QE is more and more and more negative, that this is not money printing, or at least it does not lead to the conclusion, or at least it doesn't lead to the symptoms that you would identify and associate with money printing, which as we know here, because QE is never money printing, it's all smoke and mirrors. And so even the official world, even politicians are starting to get the idea that the promises are not lining up with the actual result. And therefore, they're starting to ask questions about why these two things. You say it's easy money. You say it's money printing. And of course, I'm thinking about our frontline episode a couple months back there. You say it's easy money, but then we have to describe all these ways that it can't have been easy money. What are we missing here? And what we're missing is Maybe we don't know what QE is, but we do know we're starting to get very, very good, very good data and a very good sense that it doesn't, at least it doesn't work. So maybe we do need to take a closer look at what it actually is. British comedy is supposed to be understated and the whole culture is supposed to be a stiff upper lip and keep your chin up. So I'm going to read some comments that are very pointed coming from 
in, you know, an understated culture. Here, quote, the effects of quantitative easing remain poorly understood. And in recent years, particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic, the Bank of England has struggled to explain why it was the appropriate response to particular economic circumstances. While the scale of quantitative easing has increased substantially over the last decade, there has not been a corresponding increase in the Bank of England's understanding of the policy effects on the economy in the short, medium, and long term. Many market participants said that they believe the Bank of England had used QE primarily to finance the government's deficit spending. If such sentiments continue to spread, the effectiveness of the bank's policies will be threatened severely. It is needed <laughs> urgent. Already, I mean, that's a ridiculous statement, right? Because you're saying that we don't know how QE works, so how can it threat? How can this other thing threaten the effectiveness when we don't even when there's substantial arguments about the effectiveness? You know, it's it's we're supposed to believe this stuff is powerful monetary stimulus, but if that was the case, the results would be self-evident, right? We wouldn't need to question it because if you're money printing, we would see the inflation. That's really how simple this is supposed to be. And the fact that we don't ever get the inflation, despite how big these QEs ever become is a powerful indication that it is not powerful stimulus. So we keep saying all this easy money leads to non-easy money results. Maybe we need to go back and say it was never easy money in the first place. It's just a bunch of smoke and mirrors, some accounting tricks to get people to believe in the fantasy, which in, in the face of a real deflationary monetary shortage environment, fiction and fantasy doesn't do you much good. Here's the last and perhaps most damning line needed urgently the need for the bank to provide a way for the public and parliament to judge the success of the program to ensure that it can be held properly to account for its decisions like the the things you say are supposed to happen or not happening and we need a way to be able to tell if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing what you're but saying you're do doing that, that right because... i mean isn't that what just you promised us this, it didn't happen. So why do we need to construct some form of measurement tool? Because we just we just said it didn't happen, therefore it didn't work. So why do we need why do we need to go any further than that? It's really that simple. You said this was going to lead to a recovery in inflation. We didn't get a recovery, we didn't get inflation. End of story. But no, obviously, you know, central banks are never going to accept that. And certainly politicians. It's, and it's very hard for the public to get their heads around what central bankers actually are and what they do nowadays. So it, this is going to be a very long and drawn out process whose conclusion will ultimately view QE as a waste of time and as a waste of a, a, a huge, huge cost associated with it, not inflationary cost, but with that in that waste of time. But that's that's something that's going to happen slowly over time and won't be until long, long ways into the future until we can unlearn all of the stuff that we've been taught and, and indoctrinated into for the last, you know, four or five decades. Jeff, this is the 3rd of September. Next time we speak, the first NFL game will have been played. And I wanted to tell you and be upfront with you that I think Mac Jones is going to be better than the quarterback in Buffalo, Josh Allen, and that I won't be rooting for the Bills this year. And that if you want to continue the show, you should let me know. But if not, I'm just being upfront. I think it was tremendous that the Patriots selected Mac, uh, Mac Jones because, as we know, the history of Alabama quarterbacks is exactly <laughs> what we wish for the New England Patriots. 
Okay, okay. All right, well, we'll have to put some Euro dollars on the season then. Let's bet some Euro dollars or maybe Bancors or SDRs. I can go through the limit. I have, yeah. Since I think it's we not real just, money, no problem. We can problem. create our own monetary system. Okay. We'll just keep a ledger and, and whoever, you know, I'll write down what you owe me and you won't write down what we, and we'll just, we'll reenact the Euro dollar from, from our own ground up. Super. All right. I'll talk to you next week. Okay, Emil. Take care.